Well, good morning, everybody. Let me add my welcome to those that you've had already. You know, sometimes I feel like Larry and Ashley are stalking me. Like, for example, every morning I drive past their facility on my way to church, and some mornings I swear I see the blinds move, like they're looking out, smiling as I go by. And then occasionally, in fact, regularly, I eat at Hawkeye's. And when I'm there, sometimes Larry and Ashley will be there, and you know, they'll smile and look at me with that, you know, like that eager look, like, oh, we want to get closer to you. And then I see them at church every once in a while, and they kind of lean their head back. It's like they have a tape measure in their mind, right? And they're kind of sizing me up. You see, Larry and Ashley um, are the owner-operators of Anders Detweiler Funeral Home. And uh, sometimes I feel like they're chasing me down, stalking me, ready to get me in there. You know what I'm talking about, right? You ever sit at a red light and a hearse pulls up next to you? You never look over, right? You just, in fact, often you blow through that red light. A ticket's better than sitting there next to the hearse, right? Well, this morning, we're going to attend a funeral. No, we're not going to have a body. I'm sure Larry and Ashley could bring us one, but we're not going to have a body. We're going to look at a funeral that Jesus attended in John chapter 11, and we're going to learn a lot about funerals and a lot about how, how to solve the death problem from the passage. You know, the statistics on death are pretty impressive. One out of every one people die. <laughs> What's your plan? What's your strategy? Just ignore it, pretend it's not going to happen. That's not going to work real well. Um, you know, kind of make it sentimental. You know, death is just a natural part of life. And other crocs like that. Well, let's uh, read about this funeral and see if uh, Jesus can help us out. John chapter 11, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'll give you a warning when I'm going to jump and we'll read the verses. So let's read the first six verses to get started. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and, his, and her sister and Lazarus. So when they heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was. Two more days. Jump over to verse 21. Jesus arrives and Martha runs up. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Now jump over to verse 32. Now Mary runs up, the other sister. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth about his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jump down to verse 53, an astonishing conclusion. Check this out. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Not Lazarus, Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, let's see how we get there. We're going to look at three uh, themes this morning that show up in that passage. We're not going to go in order. Uh, We're going to kind of jump around a little bit. The first theme is love. And that's how the passage begins and how the passage ends. Love. It says at the beginning, uh, Lord, the one you love is sick. That's Lazarus. And then it says a little later um, in those first six verses, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and he loved Lazarus. And the passage further on says, all the Jews are standing there and they say, oh, look how he loved him. And by the way, that's a pretty big mistake. Jesus never loved the past tense anybody. Jesus' love is never in the past tense. He didn't love Lazarus as if it's over now. He continues to love Lazarus, and he's going to demonstrate how that works. But the passage is, in a sense, bracketed, bookended by love, and that's hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, there's kind of paradoxes throughout the passage, and even in the first six verses, it doesn't seem to make sense. Here's how it goes. An urgent message sent to Jesus, right? Mary and Martha send the urgent message to Jesus. Jesus, the one you love, Lazarus, is really, really sick. You know, this isn't a cold. Um, This is really a severe illness. And what does Jesus do? He waits two more days. Then it takes two days to travel there. So he gets the urgent message and doesn't show up until four days later. What? This is time for an ambulance, right? This is time for racing and doing all you can to get there at breakneck breakneck speed. Jesus kind of procrastinates, take it easy. Oh, yeah, I'll get there whenever I can. What? By the time he gets there, Lazarus, the one he loves, is dead. 
Funny thing about love, every parent knows this and every child knows, everybody basically knows it. Real love always involves troubles, trials, and tribulations, doesn't it? Sometimes we forget that, though. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a little warning, right? I'm not critiquing anyone in particular. It's just going to be a general statement. Many Christians explicitly teach, and most Christians implicitly believe that if you love God and serve him, you won't have troubles, trials, tribulations in your life. That's just a lie. Bad things can happen. Bad things do happen. Listen, bad things will happen. Christians die. Christians get cancer. Christian get, Christians get sick. Christians have troubles, trials, and tribulations, just like everybody else. Following Jesus and being part of his family and his community doesn't spare us troubles, trials, and tribulations. It means he goes with us through them, but we're not spared any of that stuff. You know, love's kind of hard to understand like that, isn't it? And parents know. At times, you, have, you love your kids, so you need to bring a little trouble, trial, tribulation into your life, or they're in for a big problem later. And kids know what it's like to have parents apply trouble, trial, tribulation to their life. Well, it's the same with Jesus, except he's God. He's got a whole lot more tools in his toolbox than parents do. Yeah, real love involves troubles, trials, tribulations, and real love's kind of hard to understand. As I was reading uh, that passage this week, I was reminded of a story Jesus told just a few weeks before this. Now I'm going to have you kind of go, if you're a Bible reader, you need to kind of go back in your memory. I'm, I'm, going to tell, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell you the story. Here's the story. A few weeks before this incident, Jesus tells a story. And the story's about a really rich guy and a really poor guy. And the poor guy every day would beg at the gate of the rich man's house, and the rich guy never gave him a thing. Eventually, as the story goes, they both die. Um, the rich guy, he's separated from God, and he goes to a place called Hades. And the real poor guy, he goes to the place of joy, and he's there with others, right? And he's kind of enjoying the presence of God. And during that incident, you know, the rich guy, he understands he can't get to where the poor guy is. He can't get to that place of blessing. But he's maybe for the first time thinking of others. And here's what he says. Uh, would you please send the poor guy back to my brothers? Maybe he can warn them. And maybe if a guy comes back from the dead, they'll believe him. They'll put their trust in him. And they won't wind up here in this misery with me. Remember that story? Now, I'm really going to ask you to uh, test your Bible IQ. What was the poor guy's name? La wow. Jesus tells a story a few weeks before this, probably not a true-to-life story, probably a parable, but in one of the very few examples, maybe the only example, somebody gets named in the parable, and the name is Lazarus. And what does Jesus say at the end? You know what? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if a guy comes back from the dead. 
Just a couple of weeks later, a guy comes back from the dead. His name's Lazarus. And what was the last verse I read? And from that time on, they looked for a way to kill him. Even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe him. And a guy named Lazarus did. And rather than believe, they began to plot and plan how to kill Jesus. Huh. Let's kind of jump to the end of the story and look at the tears part. There's kind of a tears part here. Um, we'll, we're going to end with the Martha section. We're going to look at the Mary section, right? Remember Mary and Martha? Martha's the one always kind of running, cleaning, and Mary's the one kind of sitting, listening. Well, Mary comes running out of the house when she hears that Jesus is there, and she runs up to Jesus, and she makes a statement, and the statement is like this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, that's probably not a condemnation. She's not like, you know, ripping Jesus. She's just saying, you know, Lord, it's a shame. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know, blind guys received their sight. Lame guys walked. Uh, people that were disconnected found community. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then what happens? Jesus weeps. He cries. Um, a lot of you know that because that's the shortest verse in the Bible, and that's probably a verse you memorized because it was the shortest verse to memorize, right? Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible. And there's kind of this amazement that runs through the crowd. And the amazement, oh, see how he loved him. No, past tense, he's still loving. He's not past tense loving. But there's something really weird. Yeah, we talked about the paradox of love, and here's another paradox. Why would Jesus cry? He knows in just a few minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he crying? He's, you know, he's so identifying and empathizing, sympathizing with Mary. He just, I don't think so. Well, why is he crying? If he knows Lazarus is going to walk out of the tomb in just a few minutes, why is he crying? Well, it's kind of in the verse. No, no, go, go back. I'll show it to you twice. Here you go. Now, you kind of missed this because I think the translators um, are afraid to say what's really there. So here's what they say. Jesus once more deeply moved. And we often think, oh, he's moved with emotion. He's moved. No, no, no. You know what that word actually means? Deeply angry. Outraged. Actually, the word is used for the snorting, bellowing sound that animals make. Jesus, wait a minute, he's, he's weeping, yes, but he's outraged and he's angry. He's snorting. Um, some of my favorite animals are alligators and crocodiles. N not as pets, like to watch on TV or, you know, get not, not too close with. Which means one of my favorite places to go right outside Disney World, is Gatorland Zoo. How many of you have ever been to Gatorland Zoo? Oh, it's great. Next time you go to Disney World, you have to go to Gatorland Zoo. And they have like more alligators and crocodiles in captivity than probably anywhere in the world. But uh, this one large set got this bridge that kind of winds through the woods, and, and there's this one little island way out there. And I remember uh, one of the last times I was there, and there's this... Uh, Giant crocodile, now crocodiles, alligators are different, we don't have time to get into all that, right? But a big, I mean, a giant crocodile is lying on the island, way you know, out there. And there's like 
dozens of alligators in the water all around the island, but they're kind of eyeing up the island like, I think I'd like to be up there in the sun, but none of them would dare to go up there. What happened to be one of those, whatever they're called, managers, gator keepers, whatever, he's, I said, well, why don't they go up on the island with the crocodile? And he started laughing. He said, they wouldn't dare. He said, in fact, as soon as they get too close, the crocodile will bellow. And immediately all the alligators kind of run away. They don't even want to get near the island. That's what Jesus is doing. Yes, he's weeping. There's kind of the grief side, but there's this outrage side. How in the world do grief and outrage fit together? If you've ever lost a loved one, you know. You grieve, and you're ticked off, right? You're full of sorrow, and you're weeping, and you're angry. I have a friend who receives a letter from a student of his. He was a seminary prof, and I'm going to read you the letter to show you how grief and anger usually go together. And if we don't ever feel it, we lie or we don't love. Listen to what this father writes. When my daughter was diagnosed with cancer, I read many books and articles on suffering. But I was left thinking that the authors did not really understand what I was going through. They all quoted the Bible a lot, but I have a theology degree. I've read the Bible cover to cover many times. I already knew that God loved me. I already knew that he provided for the sparrows. I already knew that he wept at the death of Lazarus' friend. I knew that God wins in the end, but I also knew that my kid had cancer and was dying. And I felt so gravely alone and could not understand how I was supposed to walk and how I was going to walk the rest of my life. Then I was driving in the car and some guy came on the radio and he provided the missing piece. He said... There is no good way for going through something like this because as a human being, I was not built for this. This is not the way the good world God created is supposed to function. Cancer in children is a foreign invader to which we can never be reconciled as members of God's good creation. It would be like getting a handful of sand in your eye and saying, oh, that's okay. That makes no sense. Nothing will be as it's supposed to be until we get the sand out. I am no more built for watching my five-year-old battle leukemia than having my eyes filled with sand. Suddenly I knew something. More than simply, hold on, and Jesus wins in the end. He came not just so you and I can get to heaven one day. He came because this world is broken. It needs to be fixed. People need to believe that Jesus can do it. His incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection hit the pavement on my street where I live like never before. I knew it might not mean that my daughter would survive, but it did mean that my deepest sorrow was valid. I was not alone. I knew that Jesus was weeping with me, and he feels the same rage toward evil and sin's consequences and suffering that I do. That's more important. 
for you and for me to know too. They really do go together, don't they? And sometimes when we attend funerals, we try to separate them and we center on the grief side and there's nothing wrong with that. We need to weep, but there's an outrage side. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This world is broken. Human beings are broken. And Jesus didn't just come to give us a ticket to heaven. He came to fix this mess. That is what he's teaching and showing in John 11. Well, how does that fit with the tears then? Well, let me try to say it like this. Remember verse 53? And from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Jesus weeps, and he is outraged. You know what the crocodile on the island was saying to all the alligators trying to get nearby? Come on, you want to try me? What's Jesus saying as he stands outside Lazarus' grave standing in the face of the consequences of sin, the evil one himself, and death. He's saying, you want to try me? Come on. We know that that's what he's thinking. Because Jesus knew a whole lot better than we do. When he gave life to Lazarus in John 11, he was bringing death upon himself. When he freed Lazarus from the tomb, he was putting himself in the tomb. Lazarus' resurrection would mean Jesus' crucifixion. That's how it works. And Jesus says, you want to try me? Knowing full well that the battle is about to begin. This happens just before Palm Sunday, when the battle heats up. Well, there's also truth in the passage. Truth is in the passage uh, when Martha comes up, right? Um, and it's kind of interesting how Jesus treats people very differently. Mary comes up, and she's kind of weeping, and she's more the relational one, and Jesus weeps, and he's outraged. Martha comes running up. She's the busy one, right? Her mind's always going. And she says the same exact thing that, uh, that Mary said. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus doesn't cry. He's not outraged. He gives her a theology lesson. Here's what he says. Martha, do you understand? I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Huh. Mary gets tears. Martha gets theology. They both get exactly what they need. And we need both. What's Jesus saying? Well, he's saying this. He who believes in me will live even if he or she dies. And you're about to see the preview of that in just a minute. Lazarus died. You're going to see him walk out of that grave. He who believes in me, even though he died, he's going to rise again. You're going to see it. Well, what's the second part mean then? Well, 
If you believe in Jesus, you'll never die. Well, talking about two different kinds of death and two different kinds of life, right? Physical life ends in physical death, and Jesus brings resurrection. Spiritual life, once a person believes in Jesus, just like John 3 tells us, that person is born again, and that spiritual life never ends, never a blip on the screen. It continues forever. Eternal life isn't something in the future. Eternal life begins the minute you believe, and it never ends. Just like Lazarus from the story back in Luke 16, spiritual life never ends once you're connected to Christ. Physical life may end. It'll start up again. Let me see if I can explain it this way. I was trying to think about the best way to communicate. I'm not sure this is a good. You can tell me later if you think. No, don't tell me. Um, it's almost like there are three different plans. Or uh, think of a movie, right? Um, you have a preview. A preview. A preview doesn't give you the whole movie. In fact, it kind of points to the plot and points to the climax. And but. You still don't know most of the facts, right? That's what John 11 is. John 11 is the preview. It's kind of like, you know, you, you watch the little advertisement for the film that's coming. And you know kind of what's going to happen. It's a resurrection. You were dead, now you're alive, spiritually alive, never end. That, that is the preview. That points to the main event. The main event happens a couple chapters later. Because Lazarus' death and resurrection points to the ultimate death and resurrection. That's Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the preview. That's the main event. That's the point and the purpose of the whole movie. Every, in fact, Lazarus' resurrection is based on Jesus' death and resurrection, right? It's pointing to that. And then we even get a scene after that, right? We have the award ceremony where all of those that are connected to Jesus rise with him forever and ever. I find it interesting. Uh, we don't have slides for this, but if you have your Bible, just look ahead to chapter 12. Well, look, look at verse 53 to start. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And look, don't, you can't miss this. Jesus knew Lazarus would rise again. Jesus knew his father heard him when he prayed. Jesus, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows when he raises Lazarus, he's burying himself. He knows. And he kept coming. The crowd plotting to take his life. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. He knows they're plotting, knows they're gunning for him, knows they're coming to get him. But six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. He knew what was coming, and he kept coming. Jump down to verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He knew what was coming, and he kept coming. Not just to Bethany, where the resurrection of Lazarus occurred and where they were plotting to kill him, but to Jerusalem, 
where all the scheming was centered, where all the lies were being told, and where the condemnation and execution will come. He knew what was coming. He kept coming. And on Friday of that week, he carried a cross outside the city. And in John 11, he knew what was coming. And he kept coming. What do we do in response to that? All you do in response to that is say thank you. And you now give your life to the one who gave his life for you. He knew what was coming. And he kept coming. That's our call too. The preview, John 11. The main event, the end of the week. The award ceremony, still in the future. I speak on Jesus' behalf. I hope you'll be there for that one. All those that name him as Savior and Lord will, but only those. Christianity is all about the personal pronouns. Here's what I mean. Do you believe Jesus is the Savior? I hope so. Do you believe Jesus was born? I hope. Do you believe Jesus was crucified? I hope. Do you believe he rose from the dead and said that? I hope. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is believing Jesus is my Savior. He was born for me. He died for me. He rose for me. He ascended for me. He's coming back for me. And I'll be at the award ceremony, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done. I hope that's your story. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to think and talk about death but the reality is each of, uh, each of us in this room have an appointment, and we'll keep it. But the story of Lazarus shows us that uh, that's not the ultimate end. The ultimate end for those who know Jesus is resurrection. The spiritual life that we have in him will never end, and physical life will be restored. Lord, as we look forward to that day and deal with the troubles and tribulations and confusions here, Lord, help us to follow closely. Help us to keep our eyes on the main event. Help us to fix our eyes on the award ceremony. You did with a whole lot of mess. If you know in the end, there's victory forever. We pray in the name of Jesus, who's still in the business of raising the dead. Amen.